0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: This week we're running one of my favorite throwback episodes of The Axe Files. This one, a 2017 conversation with Christiane Anmanpour chief international anchor for CNN, host of Amanpour and Company, and one of the world's most distinguished and intrepid journalists. Christiane is brilliant, she's incisive, and I just loved our conversation. I hope you will too. Christiane Amanpour, you are one of the world's great storytellers, but now I want to hear yours. Uh, because it's it's a great story in and of itself, um tell me about your growing up here in England, where we're visiting with you and in Iran.
2: Yes, so I was born in England. My mother is English, my father was Iranian, and they met on a really romantic adventurous journey that I you know only had learned about way later. My mom drove a car, a brand new car for um, clients of her father who wanted to go to Tehran, and she drove them. She was twenty-one years old or younger in 1956 or around there. I mean, young oh, British women didn't do that kind of stuff. So she was a real adventurer, and she drove over there through the badlands of you know the the Turkish sort of mountains and across to the border, having gone through France and not got on a boat and you know Lebanon a whole lot, and finally ends up in in Tehran, where she then goes to. A, a party and meets my dad, who's a confirmed bachelor, twenty years older than her, and they fall in love, and then he chases her all the way back to London and asks for my my mum's hand in marriage from my grandfather, who said to me sir, said to him, Sir, you seem to be closer in age to me than to my daughter <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: anyway, so they got married, they had us uh, I was born in England, and immediately you know taken over to iran where i grew up for me my first home was iran and all i can remember all these years later i remember everything but in terms of of just just happiness i was really happy i had a fantastic childhood uh we weren't rich we weren't poor
1: what did your what did your folks my do?
2: father was uh he 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 ran a travel agency but my father was a Connected to all the top movers and shakers in Iran, it's a very, very small community. They all went to the same school, and he was close to members of the royal family, close to many people who moved and shook the place around. Which is relevant when it comes to the revolution. Uh, when I'm 20 years old, Shah was in the Shah was in power. In power there. at mm-hmm. that time, my mom was a stay at home mom, looked after us, raised us. And life was, was really great and it was very special. I was able to do sports. I went to school, had friends, did all the kinds of things that kids used to do before social media and barely television. I mean, you know, we were allowed to watch only a little television. And I had a fantastic childhood and I had a rock solid childhood. And the reason I'm saying that now is because I realize how much your childhood affects your whole life, how much what you experienced then, how your parents treated you, how, uh, whether you, you know, if you grew up in a secure and loving um, environment, what it does for you for the rest of your life. And I hadn't realized what a debt of gratitude I owe my parents for just being great parents, for being there and for loving us and for never, ever, ever asking me, telling me, expecting me to follow their path or to do what they thought for, for me.
1: Well the story you told about your mother helps explain your intrepid <laughs> nature as a as a journalist she 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 would well approve of that I assume I,
2: I think so and you know my my mother and my father I think they must have been worried when I went to war zones when I spent so long under you know these bombardments and sniping and you know dreadful genocides and real you know, refugee crisis all these things they must have been really really worried but I know that they never express that. They obviously always ask what was going on, but they never tried to say, oh, come back, or oh, don't, or oh, we're afraid for you. Never. And again, it's only afterwards that you realize how empowering and liberating that is. Because you don't you're not doing your job thinking, Oh my goodness, everybody at home's terrified. Oh my goodness, I gotta get out of here. Oh my goodness, there's the pressure. And I wasn't married, I didn't have a kid, and um for all the years that I was doing that what I call balls to the wall reporting in the war zones, um and so that was a, a very important for me. And I think that had I, had I been more of a domesticated animal back then, <laughs> I might not have done what I did. Yeah, I would have felt I had a responsibility to stay alive.
1: I think, are, um, I think you are so right about people's child. You know, I always start off these conversations by asking people about how they grew up because It is formative, and oftentimes people have struggles that, uh, for better and worse, uh, formulate their personalities. uh, I've seen so
2: many people, and I've heard so many friends, or you know, read about so many accomplished people who, in all of their life stories, or in many of them, hark back to it was never enough for my dad, or it was never enough for my mom, or the opposite. You know what I mean? So, you're absolutely right that those early formative years and those experiences and the the messages you get from your parents are are absolutely critical and i would just say one other thing given that we live now in a, an environment in a, in a in a civilization moment where you know foreigners refugees immigration tribalism uh, religious extremism all of that informs our civilization right now whether it's in the united states under the current administration or in europe since the refugee crisis, or around the rest of the world. I was so fortunate to grow up with an English Catholic mother, an Iranian Muslim father, who without ever saying anything about this, taught me just from being there that it's possible to coexist, that it's absolutely fine to know and understand and absorb the story of the other. That as a woman, there is nothing denied to you. As a young girl, you can do anything. That's what I learned from my parents, without them ever actually saying it.
1: What about uh, around you? And how did how were you um, how were you greeted both in Iran and in in, uh, in in Britain?
2: Well, certainly since I've been going back to Iran uh, after the revolution, when I grew up and got a career and. Uh, worked for CNN. I went back to to Iran several, many, many times. Um, I covered the unfolding revolution there. And, uh, you know, I get mixed reactions there. I get people who, you know, swarm me and are happy that I'm an Iranian. Oh, you're giving us a good name overseas and well done. And thanks for showing the world that not all Iranians are raghead terrorists. Um, And the others, you know, the more hardliners, should we say, deeply suspicious. What is she doing coming back? What is her power on CNN, this and that? But in general, in general, uh, I've had a very um, good ability to cut through that stuff and to get to the heart of the matter, to be able to tell the stories there on a human street level and to be able to get access to the top, top uh, power. I've interviewed all the presidents, every single one of them since 19... uh, 1995, uh, oh, I think, from Rafsanjani all the way to the current president, Rouhani. So I've done the hardliners, I've done the moderates and the reformers. And that's been really interesting as well, because it's what's weird for me to think about is that I grew up in the country. For me, it was just home. That in 1979 exploded onto the world with this Islamic revolution, the first in modern history.
1: You weren't you were you were not there? I when, was there. You were. I absolutely was so there. So describe that. Yeah,
2: well, I was there because I was wandering around in the wilderness. I had um gone through twelfth grade, we call it upper sixth here in England. I had failed my exams. I had not got good enough grades to do what I thought I wanted to do, which I thought maybe was the right thing to do, to be a doctor. I really thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I was actually quite good at science. But I am very good at science, in fact. But I changed schools at the critical 11th grade into a school that didn't teach science properly. You know, they were much more liberal arts and art and this and that. (laughs) Anyway, so I failed. What can I tell you? Or I didn't get good enough grades to go. So you can imagine that that can either, you know, destroy you or it can focus you and you can try to to, to move past and, and learn. At the time, you didn't understand that it was Failing was a learning experience. I'm guessing you took took door two. um. (laughs) No, I took door two by dint of what happened to me and my family and my country. It was the Iranian revolution, which, because I was wandering around in the wilderness trying to figure out what to do, so I was at home in Iran, when it all started in the beginning of 1978. So I was there, you know, suddenly there's martial law on the streets outside my my door. Suddenly, you know, you're, you're sitting on your veranda and you're listening to the smuggled in audio tapes of Ayatollah Khomeini that are booming around in that sonorous scary islamic way around the you know threatening threatening who knew what and we were terrified we did not know what was going to happen and my mom you know who had was very respectful always modestly dressed but we never had to wear hijabs or chadors or all that kind of stuff when we were growing up and um my mom, you know, would go to the shop or go to the bazaar. And all of a sudden, my mother, who may have had a bare arm, found herself spat on. You know, my dad, who was connected with everybody who was anybody from the Shah on down, was suddenly afraid. My uncle was suddenly arrested. I mean, he, we believe.
1: And ultimately was executed. Yeah.
2: We believe that. They never gave us the body. Never. And, um, and we believe that somehow, was either physically killed or under duress of torture, illness, or whatever it is, died. But we don't know because they never gave us the body back. And so, um, so, so, to see your world turned upside down like that, for me, I was old enough to be fascinated. I was old enough to be just amazed by what was happening around me and to decide in that moment that I wanted to tell those stories to the world. And I thought, oh, well, that's journalism. And oh, I think I want to do television because I'd heard of Barbara Walters. (laughs) And uh, I think I want to go to America because that's the place to go. If you have a dream, if you want to work hard, if you want to make your career, your life, if you have to leave your own land. And that's what I did.
1: So this is in the bubble box that you were thinking. But in the moment, what does your family do?
2: So my family had to stay. They stayed throughout the revolution because here's the thing. My family didn't have wealth outside. So what were they going to do? They didn't have a house in the south of France or wherever it was. Many, many of their friends did. They were much wealthier. They came out. They had. Uh, they lost a lot in Iran, but they had some things to fall back on. So my parents um, stayed and didn't come out until the summer of 1980. So that is a year and a half after Ayatollah Khomeini comes back. And they came out for their annual summer break where they came to England, stayed with my grandparents, and I had three sisters, and two of the very youngest ones were still in school in Iran. So they saw their textbooks having pages ripped out, so history was being obliterated at some points the school being closed. So teachers would have to create sort of underground schools in their homes, much like under the Taliban in Afghanistan. And my sisters would go to these schools. You know, they were, I don't know, whatever, seven, 10. And uh, anyway, parents came out for with them for a summer holiday. And boom, as they were going back to Iran, again, because they didn't have an option, um, the Iran-Iraq war broke out in the September of 1980. And um, they didn't go back. And the reason they didn't go back was the borders were all closed. You couldn't drive back, you couldn't fly back, you couldn't get back into Iran. And because of my father's connections, even though he was never a minister or you know a rich guy or whatever, but he had connections to all these people, he was advised that the longer he stayed out, the less safe it was for him to return. And because his brother had been imprisoned and what happened to him, etc., he didn't go back. So my parents lived a life of Refugee immigrants and stayed in England. Of course, my mother was English, and my grandparents were were around, and they were very helpful, and that was good.
1: And that's what happened. How do you? Uh, how did that shape your future reporting? Because the, re, uh, the we we now have a planet full of refugees, mm-hmm. refugees from war, refugees from climate change. Um, I mean, it is, it is you know, it's with 6 million refugees.
2: There are 36 million all over the world. Um, the highest number since World War II. Yeah. Crazy.
1: Yeah. So, um, how does your experience shape your, both your reporting and, and you mm. know, I, I would have to call it activism uh, if journalists uh, can, can be called activists?
2: You know, I used to shy away from that. Very, 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 yeah. very much. I'm not an activist. I'm not a politician. I'm not an ideologue. I, I, you know, all I want is to tell people stories. But after 30 years, by dint of telling stories, yeah. you telling become stories a de is a facto form of activism. Absolutely. Right? right. So, why I'm an activist for the truth, I'm actually an activist for humanity. That's what I have become because of what I did. That's all just because of where I was at that particular time, seeing those things, telling those stories. And I am obviously incredibly sensitive to refugees and immigrants. Um, I just cannot get over, and it really almost makes me cry every time I even think about it, the number of people who, through no fault of their own, have been forced out of their homes, who have gone from having great jobs, who have gone from being, you know, Doctors, academics, engineers, uh, scientists, whatever, business people, and end up in a tent in some runt of a desert, in some you know backyard of a people who don't want them, and they are treated like the worst of the worst. Like they have no rights. Like they are no, not people. Like they have no humanity. And it's really you. You, I fear for people. I fear for society when I think. Of the way people look at refugees today. I really do. I fear for our humanity. I fear for um, our, our ability to be, you know, a global society, a, a community. And look at what's happening with the Rohingya in Bangladesh right now. Um, so I have always tried to report accurately and fairly on refugees. I've always tried to tell their stories whenever it's possible. Whether I, mean, I remember Being in Rwanda in the early 90s, you know, in three months, the Hutus created a genocide that was even faster than what the Nazis did in the gas chambers. In three months, they killed nearly a million people just because they were Tutsis and with prehistoric, you know, knives and clubs. It wasn't gas chambers. It wasn't industrial. That's what people can do to each other. And all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of them had to flee when they were chased out and when this genocide was finally ended. And I remember going and, and reporting on them and seeing them die en masse and their bodies, you know, stacked up like, like cords of wood because of cholera and this and that. And then several years later, literally, I'll never forget this, standing on a border between Rwanda and and, um, and Zaire, now Democratic Republic of Congo, and watching more than a million refugees come home. There were no foghorns or bullhorns. There was no instruction. There was No politicians, no leaders. Somehow, out of nowhere, this message went to all these refugee camps. And in silence, people got up. It was a sea of humanity and walked from their refugee camps back home. And we followed them. The silence is what really still gets me. I just can't even imagine how that many people could do that. So the pull of home. Is so strong. And what people don't understand in the West is that these refugees don't want necessarily to be in your lands. Right. They want to go home. I told, I took my son, who is now 17 and a half, he's in 12th grade. I took him to the refugee camps in Jordan last year when he was 16. And there are uh, millions of, of Syrians there who've, who've rotated through those camps. And um, I took my son to meet refugees his own age so that he could see what was going on. He could see that they were all people just like him. He met a young boy called Muhammad who became the the, the, the man of his family because Mohammed had seen his own father killed in Syria, shot, and his mom and his two other sisters, and he fled, and he's now the man of the family. My son at 16, who we do everything for, saw how this young boy at 16 was doing everything for his mom, his, his And how did, sisters, that, how did that affect your it son? It impacted him very deeply. I was really touched by his compassion, by his curiosity, by his commitment. And to this day, you know, he, he volunteered in the summer at a refugee agency here in London. Um, he is part of his school's international affairs club. And he's invited one of the leading experts on refugees here at Oxford University to speak there. And so just to say that it's important to know who, the, who these people are, and that's all we can do as storytellers. That's all we can do as parents, you know, teach our children well.
1: Yeah, you know, we. Um, I think in our politics, and I, I, it may be a function of the modern media world. It may be a function of... Um, this rapid change and so on, but more and more we dehumanize each other Mm. and our stories get lost. And what takes its place are caricatures that are really, really dangerous. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? take a deep breath, and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day, hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trayvel Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
1: And now, back to the show. So you went to the States, just to pick up your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went to R- University of Rhode Island. I
2: did. I did, and I loved it. I yeah. Mean,
1: what made you choose that?
2: Well, so went to the States not having any, you know, contacts or anything, and knowing that a whole group of my Iranian friends who had been in high school in, in various parts of, of America were going to Brown or boston university or in new york they were all sort of east coasters and i thought well i'm gonna go there too i don't know anybody else anywhere else but i didn't have the money my parents couldn't get any money out of iran so i didn't have the money to go to ivy league um i'd done my sat's i did pretty well and uh luckily somebody helped me get into the university of rhode island and um I just went there. <laughs> they,
1: had a, they had a journalism school. <laughs> they had a
2: journalism school, which was great. So I, I loved it. I'm still very committed. I support their Harrington School of uh, Communications now. And um, actually, I even um, sponsor a lecture there every year so that international experts can come and talk to the students, whether they're uh, journalists or people you know, who have a global outlook on the world. Uh, the latest one was the head of Reuters, Steve Adler. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was very, very pleased. Anyway, so went there, loved it, commuted uh, off campus to, to Providence, the capital of the state of Rhode Island. I consider Rhode Island my home state away from home. And I made great friends, and um, I couldn't have had a better experience. I adored my U.S. university experience. Uh,
1: one of the people who uh, was a friend of yours in that uh, time was uh, John F. Kennedy, Jr. You were a housemate yep. uh, of his. Uh, he was at Brown. He was. How? Uh, and, and you were close and you remained close throughout his, his life.
2: Mm-hmm. So as things are, I was at a party at, um, at university at that time. And um, he was at a party and he was part of the group of friends of my friends. Anyway, we, we met and we became friends. And uh, when he wanted to live off campus, he asked me and a group of other people to share a house with him. So we did. So we were five all together. And it was great fun. I mean, John was an amazing person. And of course, you being in democratic politics, you know the power of the Kennedy name and and the power of aspiration and hope that that family gives to the world. Even when I was in Iran, we had a Kennedy Boulevard. Every country I went to had a Kennedy Avenue or this or that. It, it, it was really inspiring yeah. for the whole well, world. I
1: was inspired to politics as a little boy There you go, by John F. Kennedy. But You know, I also am friendly with Caroline Kennedy, who's a splendid person. Splendid person. Uh, But through friendship, I've also come to recognize the burdens that are associated Mm -hmm. with that. And uh, just, uh, you know, the the sort of withering expectations Mm -hmm. of that legacy. And I'm sure he must have felt that, too.
2: He must have done. He was very good at compartmentalizing. You know, if anybody tried to pin him down on a future career in politics, he would brush it away. He wouldn't play their game, not even to be polite. He was never impolite. This is what I hope people, I want people to know about John. He was immensely gracious. He was immensely fun. He was a beautiful boy. He was a beautiful character. He had a beautiful heart. And he also was a serious guy. You know, he created a speaker's bureau at Brown. And it was the first time I ever met, met, for instance, a leading anti-apartheid activist, Helen Sussman, the white Jewish MP who was Mm -hmm. a leading uh, anti-apartheid. And we, you know, John brought these people. And then, you know, people, you know, at the time it was the 80s. So it was nuclear war. You know, we were going to get blown up. Um, And so there was the pro and cons on the arms control and all the rest of it, anti-nukes. So he was from a young age, just to say, or a formative age devoted to serious things as well as to being a college student with all the fun and the sports and the girlfriends and the drinking and all the fun that we all we all had. So he was a really normal, rounded person. Having said that, with abnormal expectations on him, with an abnormal life really to have lost his father so young and yet couldn't ever escape the image of his father or the pressures that that would bring, but I never saw it as pressure because John was immensely um, proud of his family, obviously, and and all the good things that they had done for America and for the rest of the world. And I think he was equally lucid about maybe one or two characters who hadn't burnished the family name so 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 glitteringly. John's mother was an amazing person. I had the opportunity to get to know through John Jackie. And, uh, I, you know, I never, it's the family Omerta. You never talk about them when they're alive. I never talked about John. I never talked about Jackie. But I will say that she was an incredible person. She was an incredible mentor to me. And she was an amazing mother. And I will always remember her face lighting up whenever she saw John, just like, oh, angel. I remember going to his apartment in New York. We banged on the door and his mama answered the door. And I mean, just she was just an ordinary loving mother. And, um, well, not ordinary, obviously,
1: but
0: she
2: was, yeah. <laughs> she was, it, it was, it was, um, you know, it was great.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, one has to assume that just knowing, um, I know, Caroline, you yeah, do know too, them both, yeah. but, uh, to have navigated those kids mm-hmm. through, I think so. Uh, that, ex- you know, the, the, I mean, all of America, you know as the images of yeah. them as five and three year old children frozen yeah. in their in their And I think that that was a
2: challenge you're absolutely right to break out of those images that the whole world had uh, uh, and to be their own people and to and to stick with that no matter where it took them whether it was into the limelight or or not you know and I think that that's really important and I know Caroline along with Senator Teddy Kennedy played a pivotal role in President Obama's campaign yes and um and uh, I, I, I wonder. I, I don't claim to have been told, you know, the secret of whether John would have pursued elected politics. I think he would have done. I don't know, yeah. but I think he would have been fantastic. He was so charismatic and and so um, compassionate and and a real person, and believed in in you know the kinds of things that motivate all of us. And um, yeah, I, I think he, I think he would have been very good. And I think George Magazine. When I look magazine back on it, founded. the magazine he founded, exactly, which was his first public breakout, really. Um, I think it was, maybe he didn't know it. I certainly don't know it. I can't say for sure. But, you know, that was his soft entree into politics in his own way, where he fused celebrity politics and, and real issues, you know, and sort of, which is what we're all doing today, right? I mean, that's that's what's happened, this whole sort of fusion. But anyway,
1: um, see, I remember his you, mom, you, just, just yeah. one thing
2: about his mother, which I, I never heard her say, but she said it in some place that it was written down for all immortality. And I think she's absolutely right. If you screw up your children, nothing else much matters. If you screw up raising, she obviously didn't say screw up. If you mess up raising your children, nothing else you do in life much matters. And I think that is, that is absolutely a motto to live by.
1: You've seen a lot of, uh, sadly, a lot of death, a lot of loss yeah. in your life that one must have hit you hard
2: yes um yes yes i still don't believe that john is not here um i spent the last weekend of his life with him and his uh, wife and his cousin anthony who was dying of cancer and uh, you know all the there were a few friends and And we had a great weekend, and uh, we were going to see each other, not the next weekend because that's when he was going to his cousin's wedding, but the following weekend we were going to regroup back in Martha's Vineyard. And um, I probably will never forget ever sitting in, in Washington and having CNN call me and say, we just want to let you know. I still have a very hard time but they just wanted to let me know that the plane was missing and uh, uh, John was going with his sister, uh, sorry, with his wife and her sister to his cousin's wedding in Hyannisport, Port and the plane was missing and they didn't know where it was and uh, I think it took, I can't remember how long, it seemed like an eternity, but certainly several days until they found it and um, it was a big loss and a big shock and it still is. I think none of his friends have gotten over it in his family. Um, and I think that beyond the personal loss, I, I genuinely believe, especially in this um, climate of, you know, you just you look for hope, you look for leaders, you look for possibility and youth and promise. I think, I think the U.S. may have lost out on a future leader. I, I do, and I think that's a shame
1: you uh you were you went to cnn almost from its inception
2: i did three years in cnn started ted turner famously um announced cnn would launch june 1st 1980 at if i'm not mistaken a jewish country club in atlanta that was our first headquarters colonnades sort of the gone with the wind kind of Hmm. mansion and uh
1: also, I don't remember many Jews in Gun with the Wind, but anyway. No,
2: the mansion. Oh, I see. It was a Jewish country club. <laughs> oh, I see.
1: <laughs>
2: say what it looked like. Don't be so literal, David. Um, uh, and, and Ted had created a satellite garden. So there were these massive, great satellite dishes in the garden. And that's what was, you know, sending um, CNN around the world. But, um, yeah, I joined it as a startup. And as I like to say, for us, it was graduate school on the job. None of us, most of us who who joined as at entry level positions, none of us had been to graduate school. We all thought, "Oh gosh, there here's this place they're looking for for people. We'll go learn on the job and then join the big leagues afterwards." Little did we know that CNN uh, would be the big league.
1: You know, uh, I never, uh, I never went to journalism school, mm-hmm. and I kind of learned uh, by writing I, for. Little smaller newspapers and then larger papers and, and so on. Um, how much did journalism school actually benefit now, you? Now, you already told me you're a benefactor, but it seems to me that, that this is one of those things that you just have to learn by uh, it's doing It's true.
2: I didn't actually go to journalism school. I mean, the, I, I did a liberal arts degree with a focus on journalism at, um, mm-hmm. at, uh, at the University of Rhode Island. I, look, I think there's certain technical things that you can be taught, particularly in the broadcast. Mm-hmm. We're sitting here with two microphones yes. and it takes, and you're sitting there with the controls and it takes some- Talking to Zane, our <laughs> tech here. Yes. With his poppy on. I'm very pleased to see you wearing the poppy. It's going to be Armistice Day in a couple of days. Um, and this is for all the all the fallen. And I'm particularly sensitive to that, given all the war that I've covered. Um, so <laughs> I've digressed. Uh
1: I think we left it at, at oh journalism, journalism school. school yes. Yeah,
2: journalism school. And then we'll
1: bring it back to the Jewish Gone with the winds. There
2: you yeah. go. So all I'm saying is that off we went to be the band of merry men and women who were going to launch this startup. And and here's where it gets beautiful: challenge the world, challenge the system, be the original disruptors in that. And he industry. was a real
1: iconoclast. He yeah. was a he was a disruptor. He was. Her.
2: I honestly, if you ask me. I honestly think I died and went to journalism heaven. I managed throughout my career to work for two of the greatest people in this world. In this world, I'm talking about journalism and broadcast. Ted Turner and Don Hewitt. For nine years, I was a contributor to 60 60 Minutes. minutes, And it is like dying and going to heaven. It is when you work for people like that who are brilliant, who are revolutionary, who are creators, who are not afraid to be on the cutting edge, even when society goes against them. And I just think of Ted, you know, Ted was always sort of kind of laughed at, oh, he's a little crazy, isn't he? No, well, no, he's not, frankly, he's not. Because if he really was crazy, we wouldn't have CNN. He wouldn't have won the America's Cup. He wouldn't be the leading of the modern day philanthropists with everybody from Warren Buffett and Gates and all the rest of it following Ted's lead. He wouldn't have, have recognized climate change, change and brought up the most private land in the United States of America just to save it, yeah. and in South America as well. So you might think he's a little crazy, but he's really not.
1: He's brilliant. I have to tell you, apropos to nothing, but it's one of my favorite stories that, uh, about the encounter that Barack Obama as a candidate had with Ted Turner yeah. in 2008. And Ted Turner said, Barack says, I'm giving you the max, he says, and I don't want anything for it. He says, "I don't." Uh, and uh, uh, he says, "I don't want anything." And Obama put his uh, hand on Turner's shoulder and said, "Ted, you don't need anything." <laughs> and I think they both had a big laugh That's out of that. Good. But he is an American original. There's oh, no really doubt. He really
2: is, and a hero. He is a hero.
1: Yeah.
2: He, and 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 you know, for me, I'm obsessed by leadership, and to an extent, to an extent, by looking inspiration and at you know models that you can aspire to yeah. and uh and and all of that and i really genuinely believe and i'm so thankful that i got to work for people who i a loved and b proudly followed and and respected them you know what i mean and um and that was really great really great
1: i um the the world came to know you you became a, a living legend in the nineties. Uh, first, uh, covering the, the the first Iraq uh, the war, the Gulf War, the Gulf War. Yes, and um, uh, h- how did that come about? Was it, <laughs> you? How did you end up as the?
2: It's a very good question because I certainly wasn't senior, and there are a lot of men with their you know bomber jackets wanting to go to cover this <laughs> war, um, which of course they did. But, um, so I woke up in Frankfurt the morning that Saddam Hussein, which was August 2nd, 1990, invaded uh, Kuwait, and I thought, "I'm going. I'm going, I've got to cover this." And a week before I had written a little memo on the old, you know, you know, whatever typewriter to my, um, my boss is saying, I think it's getting a little hot in the Middle East, you know, all this Saddam and Kuwait and this row they're having over the border and. All. And I got this huge. I got it faxed back to me with a big cross in it saying, not now. Ah. So a few days later. Where were you based then? In Frankfurt. So this was my very first assignment as a foreign correspondent. I see. And I only got it because the more senior guys didn't want it. And it was going begging. And I was, you know, like a terrier at the snapping at the heels of my (laughs) foreign editor saying, I'll go, I'll go. Anyway, so I went to Frankfurt. And that's where I heard this news. And I just went into the zone. and I. I called up the desk and I said, I'll go, I'll go to, to wherever. Of course, you couldn't get into Iraq because you just can't. Kuwait was invaded, so all the airspace and land space was closed because the Iraqis were in Kuwait. And where else were you to go? So it became Dubai. The Emirates were, the, were hosted, um, the initial waves of of, of press. And, and I was told, no, it's okay. You know, the group from Paris are going and this and that. So in any event, I booked myself on a flight and I called and I said, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> They said, Christian, what are you waiting for? Go! The Paris people can't get on the plane, or whatever it was. They couldn't get there fast enough. So I went, and for me, the rest is history. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just great. There I was. First of all, oh, far from the battlefield, because we were in Dubai, and everything was happening in Kuwait, but people couldn't get into there. So we had to figure out where to report it. So, as you you know, we flooded the zone, so to speak. So did every other organization. So. We all all went to places around Iraq and Kuwait, and I remember going from the Emirates. We went then to Egypt, where President Mubarak was having an Arab League summit. What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with you know Saddam? And then we all went to Saudi Arabia, which opened its borders because they had you know they America had said we're going to save you, we're going to protect you, and so. Plain loads of journalists, including myself, uh, went to Saudi Arabia. And basically, that's where we stayed uh, from the summer of 1990 until January of 91, when the war broke out, preparing and watching and reporting on the buildup by the United States and its allies. And when I think back to 1990, and I imagine a force of 500,000 plus ground forces, air forces, all these people not just from America and the, and the traditional NATO allies, but Syria, Egypt, you know, countries all over. Obviously, Saudi Arabia, all over, were enjoined to that battle, and it was incredible to watch that build up, and then you know to be um, to be there when the war started. So I I did a little bit of it from an aircraft carrier, the beginning of the war. Um, which I was very teed off about because I was felt like I was way too far away in the Red Sea on the USS JFK. There was a little bit of poetry there. But um, then I, I, I went to Baghdad. I went to Baghdad for the last couple of weeks of the war. But I do remember one of the things that sticks out in my memory, apart from all the amazing experiences during that time, was that when I first went, it was myself, a female, plus my two female colleagues, camera woman, Jane Evans, sound woman, Maria Fleet, and me. And when we got there, everybody said, Christian, doesn't doesn't CNN know, you know, women don't get to do anything here in Saudi Arabia. This is an all male, you know, outfit.
1: <laughs>
2: and I'm like, well, here we are. And we <laughs> and we got serious scoops for that. And again, I'm really junior. They're all these, you know, Network guys who are well-known to all you viewers and all the rest of it. And I got a couple of scoops because I was a girl, and the princes decided they're going to put this girl, who obviously wasn't going to create much trouble, in a car and drive her to the border. And I got lots of good pictures and stories, and and, it was great. It was really great.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files.
2: Listen to the assignment with me,
0: Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
1: And now, back to the show. On the Gulf War, the United States and the Allied forces obviously uh, ejected Iraq quickly and could have marched right to Baghdad and could have toppled. Saddam Hussein. Did you recognize at the time uh, that that was a, a a wise strategic decision, or it was, or or did that over time occur to the, occur to you?
2: You know that that occurred to me slightly later. But I will tell you something interesting, and this I thought was my value added as an Iranian. That I don't know whether you remember, but there were all these analysts and people who somehow doubted that the might of the United States of America and its hundreds of thousands of allies might be crushed by Saddam Hussein do you remember that yes i mean do you remember that nonsense and all i could think of without being you know without having a massive amount of experience which i didn't was that hang on a second saddam invaded iraq iran my country at its weakest point in 1980 right after the revolution and saddam lost he ended up losing. If he lost to Iran, he is not going to win against the United States of America. Yeah. So I had that feeling that the US could do whatever with its allies. And I was surprised because I was in Baghdad at the time when we heard that the war was over. And I was surprised because we expected everybody on the streets in Baghdad, I promise you, were saying to me, are the Marines coming? Are they coming? Are the Americans coming? Once they realized... There was a tiny window when people were really excited in Iraq. Saddam was still in power, remember? He hadn't been dislodged from, from the presidency. He had been kicked out of Kuwait, but he was still right. in power. But for that moment, for that tiny moment in, 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 in March or whenever the war ended, February, March of 1991, the people on the streets believed that the Americans were coming to rescue them. It lasted maybe 24 hours until they realized they weren't, and then they shut up because what are they going to do?
1: You know, they'd all be executed, and that was the expectation in two thousand and three, which did happen. That they would be gre- greeted as liberators. Well,
2: uh, they were on the day after after uh, Baghdad fell, for sure. It was only afterwards, when after a series of dumb decisions, um, and then there was a, a, an insurgency, that it all Dismantling went to hell. The yeah, path, all of that. I mean, and... you know. It, it it was it was crazy what happened after the the second Iraq War, um the the arrogance, the uh, the 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 hubris, and as a reporter, when we were there seeing what was going on, the looting, for instance, which as soon as they realized there was no the Iraqis that there was no institutional law and order, because you know. The Americans had said to the military, go home and we won't hurt you. And then you can join and, you know, be part of a new Iraq. So they all went home. They didn't provide any resistance to the American forces in the 2003 war. And then they were left home and dismantled and fired and all of that. So what did that do? Created a big vacuum on the streets. You need law and order. And there was none. And the Americans weren't providing it. I sat with American forces on their vehicles going through the streets, you know, filming and, and doing the reports of what was going on in the immediate aftermath of the liberation of Baghdad, to watch people coming out of palaces and hospitals and schools, you know, with vases and chairs and tables and hospital equipment, literally looting anything that moved or didn't move. And I remember saying to the, I think, Lieutenant Colonel who was, our, you know, who we were traveling with, aren't you going to do something? Not our job, ma'am. And that went on for too long. And that then and then of course you had those people who'd been dismissed and left home became the backbone of the insurgency. So when we tried to start warning I remember Rumsfeld and the others, okay, this looting, it's out of control. Rumsfeld famously said, Oh, hang on, isn't that the same vase? I think I've seen that on a loop coming out of every you know, every building. No, Mr. Rumsfeld, no. This was widespread and it was deteriorating law and order, and, and the system was imploding. Then we started to report about the insurgency, and that we were poo-pooed as well. The, the U.S. didn't take the insurgency seriously until, I mean, it wasn't too late, but it was very late.
1: What about uh, the, the notion that, uh, the that, that the U.S. underestimated sectarianism generally as a consequence of you know that that's,
2: that that's possible as well. I think that a lot of things went wrong after. Basically, the they didn't have the plan for post liberation. There was a plan. The State Department had a plan, famously, but the State Department's plan didn't get enacted. The Rumsfeld plan got enacted, and the Paul Bremer plan got enacted, and the. You know the 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 George W. Bush wannabe you know activists who were there in their W. T. shirts in the C.P.A. the Co- Coalition Provisional Authority. That was their plan, and their plan was based on, I don't know, I mean I don't know. I, I we couldn't believe it. We just watched it, and I I'm not trying to be flip about it. We, it was so bad that this is the result that we have. That we we are still paying for that. We are still the world is still paying the backlash and the blowback from the post-Iraq war, not the Iraq war, the post. Because I still believe, and I may become very unpopular saying this, but had there been a real plan on that day in April when the statue was toppled and Saddam was no longer there, had there been a real post-war plan, I believe a success could have been made out of a Saddam-less Iraq. That's what I believe. And many people believe that. It's just that there wasn't a plan and it all went to hell. And they were so bent on justifying their WMD and their this and their that. And, you know, then they, you know, Iran comes in and, you know, then the whole sectarianism thing starts and you get the Sunni insurgency. So it's so, what's the right word for that? I mean, I think it's a real opportunity lost because I genuinely believe that Iraq would not have got rid of Saddam Hussein without help from outside. He'd been there for decades. He was a terrible tyrant. He, uh, you know, used chemical weapons. He executed people. I remember when we used to cover Iraq, while he was still in power, um, and this was after, between, the, between the first Gulf War and, and, the, and the second Gulf War, it was terrifying. It was literally a totalitarian state. You believe that on every lamppost there was a camera watching you. Certainly the people believed it. We believed in all of our hotel rooms, there were cameras watching us through the TV. Everything we did, everything everybody did was monitored. Every member of of a family would have to keep their own thoughts to themselves, not knowing which member of their family might be an informer. It was a terrifying place, and something had to help push Saddam Hussein out. And the U.S. did it. But unfortunately, based on a faulty premise that they then had to defend, and based on not reacting correctly or not being flexible enough to react to the, the day after. And there were some great generals on the ground from David Petraeus on up who, who really understood what was at stake and could have done, you know, I think a much better job had they had the political apparatus.
1: You raise an interesting question, which is what is the responsibility of the US uh, to push out tyrants? Uh, and yeah, you know, it becomes really important because uh, President Trump has signaled that human rights is no longer a uh, a guiding principle yeah. of American foreign policy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think to be honest with you, the post-Iraq debacle has put a damper on any of that what I call humanitarian intervention—the things that President Clinton and Tony Blair did, for instance, in Kosovo, which was and-
1: another of your. Big Uh, stories. stories. Yeah,
2: Bosnia was the first one. Of course, they were very late and there was hundreds of thousands of deaths and a full-scale genocide in Bosnia before they intervened. And then they did intervene with bombing the Serbian military positions and at the same time having a uh, um, political framework that ended up being the Dayton Peace Accords. So there was a, a coordinated, proper military and diplomatic end to the Bosnia war. And then I think partly because of what we all did in telling the story and making another Bosnia unconscionable for our democratic leaders. You know, you couldn't have the next president of the United States or the next British prime minister or the next French uh, president or whatever witness this again in Kosovo. And we made it impossible for our democracies, I think, and that's where I'm proud of what we did in Bosnia as storytellers. All the press, everybody did a great job making this front and center and humanizing the conflict there and making it impossible for our elected leaders to continue to turn away. And um, therefore, before it became a whole scale, wholesale genocide in Kosovo, Clinton, Blair, others gathered their own coalition. It wasn't formally NATO. It was a co- coalition of 19 willing nations um, with the acquiescence of Russia, of you know all the others. And they stopped a Serbian-led genocide by Milosevic or hardline, I won't lump all Serbs in the same in the same bracket. But the presidency of Slobodan Milosevic was prevented from creating a genocide in Kosovo. And I I have been very critical of the Obama administration for not intervening in Syria because I believe, and we don't need to go into the politics of it. I know what President Obama says, and he he says that he would stick with what he did even to this day. But I believe that what happened in Syria is what we're all paying for now. The refugees, the terrorism, the blowback, the ISIS, the political populism, the waves of disruption, uh, not to mention, of course, the chemical weapons.
1: Yeah, the question, first of all, the question is what Americans would tolerate. But the second question is, uh, post-military action in Syria, what would the what, How would that space be governed? and how and what would that commitment entail? Well, I, think I mean, that, I, i'm not I'm not arguing one way or the other, but it it's a complex challenge, you know
2: of it course it's a complex challenge. I mean, everything is in this regard is complex. It's not like, you know, playing dominoes. It is actually very complex. but i I do believe that it could have been done. And I think there was enough of a coalition and enough willingness. And also, Assad hadn't done as much destruction in 2012, for instance, as he then ended up doing. And, and you know, I mean, you know, now the Russians rule the ruse mm. there. The Iranians rule the ruse there. This None of that happened. They didn't enter. You know, it, I, I strongly believe that, that had action been taken around 2012, it would have been very
1: different. Talk about Iran and where Iran is today. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, this is of interest for two reasons. One is there is this tug and pull now about whether the Trump administration will in some way in pull out of the well, nuclear agreement.
2: As nefarious as some of Iran's actions are, the big challenge was always on a global scale to contain Iran's nuclear program, which President Obama, the administration did. You gathered this coalition, there was the weight of the sanctions. And then there was the willingness for diplomacy helped uh, and uh, actually enabled by the election of Hassan Rouhani, that the Iranian people elected a reformer, a relative moderate, and otherwise this wouldn't have been able to happen. Nobody would have been able to do this with Ahmadinejad.
1: This is uh, something that I think is not commonly understood uh, because the president himself, Trump, has talked about how fundamentally anti-democratic Iran is Mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, but, uh... Well, it's not a democracy as we know it, because
2: it's a managed system. But if you take other American allies, let's say Saudi Arabia or the Gulf Emirates or whatever, I mean, you know, those are monarchies. They have no political space. They have no meaningful elections. Iran, to an extent, has at least, you know, you can choose between a hardliner and a moderate. And there makes a difference.
1: It does, but... Uh, I guess the question is, what is the potential for the uh, triumph of democracy over theocracy?
2: I think that that's a very good question. And many people have believed that that's going to happen. And it hasn't happened yet. And I think, I don't know how it's going to happen, but or when it's going to happen. I don't know whether all these old ones have to die off and and something different comes in in its space. But I do know that Iran is a very young country with uh, the majority of its population under the age of 21, something like three quarters. Very, very highly educated, very tech savvy, very connected and plugged in, despite the best efforts of the regime to keep them from you know, being fully uh, online and on social media. And they said, Every time the regime puts up a block, creative people go around. We used to call it the cat and mouse. You know, it's been going on for decades when the regime tries to block them from access to the outside world there's a whole system of clever young techies who, you know, give you the the alternative software. In any event, they're very connected. And they have made it clear over and over again that they want a different life, that they want a life that's connected to the rest of the world, that they want a life that's more normal, that they want a decent economy, that they want to be proud of their country, that they want to be able to travel to other parts of the world. So in all of that, they chose the leader who could potentially give them A little bit more of that because the hardliners would not because the rest of the world wouldn't engage with the hardliners and the hardliners wouldn't engage with the rest of the world. So I think the confluence of an Obama administration that was willing to do the the, the diplomacy and an Iranian president who was willing and brought his hardliners along because people forget that it's not just in the United States that you have opposition, you do in other countries as well and most particularly in Iran. So I think that confluence of... Of Of the sanctions that did their work, of the alliance that, the, that was the europe and, and the United States, china, russia, uh, the willingness of Iran to take a you know to do this and to need to get out of under the yoke of the sanctions, came to a good agreement, and again, we say good, not perfect. perfect should not be the enemy of the good in these mightily important situations, so given that everybody said that the biggest global challenge would be Iran's nuclear program, given that this was solved to the greatest extent possible at the time for the next couple of decades under the Obama administration, that was something that the world could breathe easier afterwards. And to see it all be put into play again is very destabilizing, particularly as you have a very real issue, much, much worse and much, much more dangerous in North Korea, which actually has nuclear devices. Which actually has tested them, which actually has uh, intercontinental ballistic missile ability, and is continuing to perfect them, and which is now perfecting, you know, the miniaturization of a a nuclear weapon to put on a long-range missile. That's a problem. And to tear up the Iran deal, first of all, the signal it sends
1: to North Korea about negotiating, yeah, or
2: anybody that you want to negotiate Mm -hmm. with hang on a second, you're going to sign on the dotted line with the United States a deal that's enshrined in the UN Security Council and becomes a resolution, and it's dealt with all the other countries who are important. You're going to rip that up. What does that say? What does that say to anybody who you're trying to convince, entice, force, negotiate, compromise with, to try to to, to have uh, that solution? But worse, even worse, what does it mean if you've got now two rogue nuclear problems? What if Iran decides that, oh, my God, you know, we're going to have to... I don't think they will. I, don't, I hope that this deal won't fall apart. But when you've got one big thing to deal with, you really don't want to be creating another big thing.
1: Christiane Amanpour, so good to be with you. I could talk to you for several hours <laughs> uh, and look forward to f- many future conversations. Great David to be Axelrod, with
0: you. thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.